Welcome to the Holiday and Hello World special podcast from Orbooks. I'm your host, Teddy Ostro. You may be wondering, what the heck is this? Why am I listening? Orbooks makes books, not podcasts. Well, this is the first podcast from Orbooks. It may be the last, but we thought that this holiday season, we'd bring you something extra. Whether you're cooped up at home, isolated inside, or commuting to work where you probably should not be, we are gifting you another grim moment in this absolutely horrifying year. What better way to ruin your day than to share an interview about a book about, yes, indeed, the lockdown and the pandemic. Novel and exciting indeed. But seriously, I think you will enjoy this interview. It's with a really cool guy and a fantastic writer. You may have read him around or saw him being sassy on Twitter. His name is Luke O'Neill, and he's gonna bring us down to Hell World. Luke O'Neill has written for Esquire, New York Magazine, The Guardian, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, and many other publications. He is the author of Welcome to Hell World, Dispatches from the American Dystopia, as well as the newsletter on Substack by the same name. He is also the author of Lockdown in Hell World, which we will be talking about today. Foreshadowing a subsequent exodus, Luke O'Neill and his wife Michelle moved from the city to the suburbs just prior to the lockdown. Isolated not only by a virus, but also by the alienation of a neighborhood where social distancing meant more than just geographical separation. O'Neill faced trials on numerous fronts, how to avoid potentially lethal clashes with new Republican neighbors, how to continue a working life as one of America's most electric, hard-hitting commentators without the opportunity of face-to-face reporting, how to maintain his own sanity, always a frail ship, while the world as we knew it disintegrated. The pages of Lockdown in Hell World chronicle that struggle. In turns furious, funny, and philosophical, they show a writer leavening his own feelings of helplessness by conversing with others, experiencing the same discomfort, a postal worker, grocery store clerk, hotel receptionist, and people with kids stuck at home, or Trump-supporting family members. He talks, too, with a journalist whose eye was blinded by a police projectile during a Black Lives Matter protest. Shifting back and forth across the summer, lost to a virus and an economic system already deeply unjust and now profoundly dysfunctional. The sense of desperation that laces together O'Neill's taut rendering serves paradoxically to reassure. In battling to overcome the particular obstacles they face in the pandemic, working class people are in this together. Talking to Luke was actually really fun. He's a super funny guy, but I think it actually helps in discussing such a grim topic. But before we get into the interview, I wanted to plug a holiday sale that's going on right now at Orb Books. We selected a number of books that capture this year's incomparable grimness with sharply intelligent writing and cutting-edge politics. They include Luke O'Neill's Welcome to Hell World, American Monstrosity, Donald Trump, How We Got Him, How We Stop Him, by Nathan Robinson, Everything Must Change, The World After COVID, edited by Renata Avila and Srechko Horvat, The Monster Enters, by Mike Davis, and many more. If you buy any single book, you will get 20% off, 30% off any two, and 40% off any three or more books. This is a great opportunity to get some spectacular literature, albeit dark, at a time when we really need to understand what is going on around us. Additionally, Luke O'Neill's new book, Lockdown in Hellworld, which we're discussing today, will be shipping this month, and you can get a special discount if you use the discount code LOCKDOWN. That's L-O-C-K-D-O-W-N at checkout. Don't miss this opportunity. Go to orbooks.com. That's O-R-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And lastly, if you buy all of the books on our select holiday list and Lockdown in Hellworld, I will personally transcribe any book on our list by hand in any font of your choice and hand deliver it to you. With gloves and a mask, of course, I promise. But enough of that, let's jump into my wonderfully depressing interview with Luke O'Neill. Luke O'Neill, welcome to the Holiday in Hell World special podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. This is uh, it's awful nice to uh, to talk to to you, but more importantly, talk to anyone. So I already did a little introduction of you in the beginning, but how about you introduce yourself? 
Well, some of you, or if you're listening to this, you might know me from uh, from my last book. I did uh, Welcome to Hell World, the Dispatches from the American Dystopia, or the newsletter Welcome to Hell World. So this is sort of like the third Hell World type of thing. It's a new book called Lockdown in Hell Worlds. I've been doing this newsletter for a couple of years now that the books have been based on and been a uh, you know a freelance journalist for for a long time and uh, I live in live in Massachusetts and uh, you know I'm going insane like everybody else. So we got you on here to talk about Lockdown in Hell World, which as you said is sort of like an extension of your last book Welcome to Hell World and your newsletter by the same name. So Tell me, what is what is all this Hell World business? Guide me through the newsletter, your first book, and now this new one. The newsletter started sort of uh, because out of frustration with with a lot of the things that I couldn't do in a lot of the more traditional publications that I've been writing for for most of my life. And it's pretty fortunate that I, I sort of got, got to a point where I could write for a lot of prestigious magazines and newspapers and stuff. But I wasn't happy with the type of, I don't know if restrictions is the right word, but the, the, the general sense that you had to kind of play it fair uh, or at least, you know, faint like you were uh, playing it fair. Or not necessarily down the middle, but like... I just couldn't really flex the the angry sort of leftist part of uh, muscles that that I wanted to, and that sort of pressure was building up for a long time. And so I started the newsletter when I happened to sort of come up against the wall, and I wasn't getting much work anymore for a while. So I started the newsletter over two years, I guess, you know, two years and a few months now as a way to just sort of blow off steam and kind of return to the more freeform blogging days, which I used to do, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. I had no idea that it was going to become pretty popular and then it sort of took off pretty quickly. And I've been pretty lucky. It turns out that, you know, just sort of doing what I wanted to do all, all along was uh, allowed me to, to really connect with people who are, looking for that sort of thing and then um you folks approached me maybe a year and a half ago and 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 uh john who was there at the time really really loved my my writing and convinced me to turn it into a book and and and, you know i didn't really want to do it because books are pain in the ass but he he really liked what i had done and, and you know the bones of it had mostly already been written so we decided to go through it it you know it's been really great he's got a great reception and wasn't a bestseller or anything obviously but people seem to to really like it and you know i'm, I'm pretty happy about it and, and i'm not happy about much so tell me a little bit about what kind of stuff you write about is it different from your old freelancing days which i i think you still do right i was up until the pandemic i was doing still doing stuff you know writing uh, writing news and politics stuff for the guardian on the side but you know i've been doing it so long i mean almost 20 years now i i, I started out largely as like a arts and culture journalist and you know i, I worked at a lot of the a couple of the um all weeklies here in, in massachusetts in boston and did a lot of music stuff and a lot of restaurant stuff and all the sorts of things i basically you know when you're a free, freelancer you, you have to do whatever you can you know you like you want to write someone someone says you want to write about this you say yes and then you figure out you know what you're gonna how you're gonna write about it you know most people aren't in the position to be able to turn down work of any kind but I, you know i was happy to do that I, I the only thing i ever wanted to be was a music journalist when i was growing up and and then i did that for a while and i got sick of it like you get sick of anything else i've always been a, a pretty lefty but i was somewhat more of a just a basic ass progressive, I guess, until maybe halfway through the Obama administration. And I really started to become a lot more radicalized and, and I guess a, a leftist or whatever you want to call it now. And I, I really started to notice what a, I mean, not that I didn't know, it wasn't like it was some huge revelation to me, but I started to notice how fucking terrible everything is for so many millions of people in this country. And I, I really couldn't look away from it. So the ways that, that people are sort of ground up in, in the gears of America is, is largely what I write about, you know, whether it's 
our predatory healthcare system or, or you know, police violence or prison uh, industrial complex or things like that. Not exactly happy stuff, but I think that maybe the thing that I do that's a little different that, you know, there's a lot of reporters that cover that stuff much better than I do. But along the way, I came across this sort of almost memoirish style of reporting and, and commenting on these types of things where I sort of weave in my own, you know, internal monologue into the stuff as I'm writing about it. And, you know, I'm sure I didn't invent that, but lots, of, it's not exactly common. And for some reason, it seems to, I don't, I guess the effect is like, what I'm trying to do is like, translate how our brains feel when we're reading these terrible news stories or we're scrolling through Twitter and we're sort of overwhelmed by the the horrific nightmare of it all. And, you know, so when I was writing for a few years for Esquire or places do, contributing here and there to the Washington Post and stuff like that, you can't break into the middle of writing on something and say like, this is fucking, this is fucked up. This is, you know, this person deserves to get their fucking head chopped off. You know, you can't like, you can't say what you actually think. And so this has really sort of been an opportunity to sort of viscerally describe my anger, but also my sort of despair over a lot of these things. So that's something that, that people are feeling themselves. So I think it feels good to, I mean, the most common thing that readers tell me is that, like, this is how I feel. And it's good. To, it's like really good to know that I'm not alone in thinking this way. Because when you do read standard media, it's it's supposed to be, you know, down the middle, even when we're talking about something where there is clearly a good guy and a bad guy. Yeah, it's, it's strange. It, it, there's like this lifeless quality to a lot of media that you read that makes it super tough to read. And right. you're just like, what is how tell me or share something that relates to my thinking about this you know it's right. it's hard to kind of translate and on that memoir point you know it, you ground this new book you know in in this memoir um in in, in your diaries um documenting a big change in your life parallel to the pandemic actually which is you and your wife move right right tell me about that like how it affected your well-being the way you think about things just what was going on there well it was something that we you know we've been looking to move we we lived like real not in boston proper but you know like five ten minute ride from it um and we were looking for a place to live for a long time and you know massachusetts and, and boston in particular maybe not quite as bad as as new york or san francisco or whatever but cannot buy you could get like a studio for six hundred thousand dollars or something so we were looking for a place to live for a long time and and i i definitely did not want like the idea of moving to the suburbs but we that's basically all we could afford so we moved like 30 40 miles west of boston and we were set to move in april on, you know april 1st and and that was about two weeks after people started like actually taking COVID seriously. And so it was a really weird time. You know, the book sort of traces, it begins right around then in, in the middle of March, and it goes up until, you know, right before the election or, or right after the election. So it's, it's a lot like the first book in style and sort of subject matter, except it's, whereas the first book was like pieces written over the course of a few years, this is sort of, you know, more narrowly focused on, on the pandemic and, and, uh, you know, the experience of moving and sort of being, feeling uh, somewhat isolated, you know, it's like moving to a new town, but you can't really know it yet, because by the time we got here, everything was closed. And then uh, as it goes on, then the, the, the giant Black Lives Matter protests and marches started to happen after George Floyd and, and, and all of that. So it goes into a good good amount about police violence. And, and the, the difficult thing of it all was, you know, like outside of maybe like 10 or 12 or 15, you know, protests or, or marches and stuff that I went to and going back into Boston, maybe like five or six times, like I haven't really left the house much. And 
so an interesting part of the book is like how do you stay a reporter while basically doing it from home you know um so it, it was difficult in a way but i i let lots of other people tell their stories you know people working on the front lines in in supermarkets and restaurants and and things like that so you know i did my best to to try to keep bringing some of the outside world into the book yeah and you you cover i think what a lot of people feel who are you know are able sort of have the privilege to work from home such as an element of survivor's guilt right interestingly enough that life actually hasn't changed much right right yeah it has been interesting because at the same time my wife is a teacher and so uh, all summer there was this stress in the back of our mind well not even the back it was just a constant stress of was she going to have to go back in person to teach and and uh, we got pretty lucky that she ended up being able to do it remotely so you know it has been a little bit different i'm used to like sitting at home alone all day in my normal life freelancer going you know traveling here and there and, and going to things to report on them but but largely you know having my home as my home base is something i'm used to it's just that it's a different home now uh than the one we lived in for like 13 14 years before this i mean that's something i didn't want to let myself think like oh this is just like anything else because it's not like my personal life my working life has changed a little bit but you know i hasn't been thrown into chaos like it has been for so many other people so i wanted to make sure that you know people who have been fucked over by all this got to have their say as well pretty key part of the book i think is uh captures this moment and just your thinking around a really important bar and concert space that closed down right the great scott in yeah. boston and the experiences you had there it i mean the way you talk about it it seems like a really beloved institution in boston yeah. you know yeah. and and now it's gone dying from a cocktail of COVID and capitalism, as you write. Right. And you, you know, you construct this motif of old businesses turning into bank branches. And, you know, we know this is happening all around the country, around the world. And I'm from New York, and I just scrolled through this list, um, a New York mag list that was compiled of 500 businesses that closed down during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Listed in consecutive order of their founding. So you have like Lord and Taylor, from the 1820s all the way to stuff that has opened this year and it's just like tragic and i'd like to i think i'd like to read a, a portion of this section um sure. in your book you write i imagine they'll be putting in another bank branch or some dog shit in the great scott space soon because once this is over the pre-pandemic gentrifying and homogenizing forces already long conspiring to destroy anything with character in boston and Austin in particular, will have had their way. It will be right across the street from the other fancy bank branch that's already there right now. And someday, no one will tell any stories whatsoever about going there for their banking needs. They won't even have any memories to forget like I did. Well, yeah, I mean, so that's that was something I wanted to get into the book as well, because this is, it's, you know, it's interesting because, and one of the other things I write is like, you know, I didn't want to move away from all my beloved places, you know, into the suburbs. But then as soon as I did, they were all taken away anyway. So it's sort of this like cruel irony. And that was one of the places that, you know, I've been going for 20 years. It's, you know, you, every city has one. It's like a, a, a sort of divey indie rock club. But, you know, somehow like everyone you ever loved plays there, famous bands that go on to be famous they that's where they played the first time and you know that sort of place uh the first time they came through your city and also just a very big part of the local music scene and and i was you know i've been a a, a musician for most of past well you know with a big break in the middle but you know played in bands for for years anyways and used to play there all the time and I, it just seemed like this perfect symbol symbol of what is kind of being lost, not only because of COVID, but just because of like everything in general. Like all these, like a lot of these places, the ones you mentioned in New York, I mean, most of them were probably killed by by COVID, but a lot of them would have been replaced anyways by a bank branch or 
by some, you know, chain, uh, fucking Panera bread or whatever. And I don't know. I think it's, I think it's important that we memorialize these places, but also without being like too precious about it because places always disappear in a city. But I wonder this time if, if like this might be like the final blow all across the country at once where most of these beloved small indie places don't come back, you know, not just, not just, you know, music venues, but coffee shops or pizza shops or whatever. I don't know. I, I, I mean, fortunately they, Grace Con in particular, they ended up raising a bunch of money. So it looks like they're going to open in a different space, but like, who knows when that will even be able to happen? You know, like, are we, we don't know, right? Are we, I just heard something about maybe like the end of spring things, if the vaccine goes well, things can be back to normal, but like everything is going to be so devastated by that. And so many places will have given up or, or been choked to death by this. And, and by the lack, I mean, by the lack of help coming from the government, more importantly, it's just like another example of how badly we've handled this whole thing. You know, I, I don't think, um, many i mean some other countries have been hit pretty hard but i don't think any anyone has, has handled it as stupidly and on purpose as we have and it's just a fucking shame man. related to how you construct the chapter about the great scott something just in general about your hell world writing um that i find pretty powerful is your use of people around you and it, it kind of makes sense because you're a reporter so both in a classical way, you, you interview people and you quote them and quite extensively sometimes, you know, you publish the entire interview and a number of them are really amazing. Like you did one with Linda Tirado, who was mm-hmm. shot in the face by right. um, Minneapolis police during the protest this summer with some kind of rubber bullet. And um, she lost an eye Yeah, uh, and people may have read about that. But also, for example, in the chapter about the, the bar, you you just ask your friends to tell you stories and you recount them because you know you say you've just forgot yeah i feel like there's something like really unique about this style it feels like i don't know compassionate more compassionate you and they're also i really what comes through is you feel you you appear very clearly to love and respect the people around you and then they love you back yeah i've been very lucky that i don't know what um you know, my, my, my public persona might be, uh, kind of like a dickhead, but like, for some reason, I've been very fortunate to like, keep all of my, pretty much all of my friends that I've accumulated throughout my life, you know, like I'm 43. And, you know, I still talk to my main group of high school friends, I still talk to my main group of college friends, and then like, all of the band, all the people that, you know, that, that i became my best friends from that music scene that we were talking about. And I, I don't know why, cause I, I mean, I am kind of a <laughs> grumpy piece of shit, but um, yeah, but I'm lucky. I, don't, I think that, 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 um, that I don't know what they see in me, but they see something worth keeping around. But I think that's important because, you know, as I write a lot in that piece, like I, I've forgotten a lot of things and that could be from, drugs and shit like i talk about but i think that like you have to i don't know you don't really know yourself unless you ask the people who know you unless you you know get their their input on it if that makes sense like we're all very insular in our thinking oftentimes and and sometimes it can be really revealing to like i'll do it to michelle my wife all the time like to 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 try to remind me of, of what an experience that we both had was like from her perspective. So I can like break out of my, my own sort of blinkered mode, if, if that makes sense. And you really, you, you've accumulated quite the community of people who read your work. And I guess it's because you invite them into your world that they allow you to publish what they're thinking. You, mm-hmm. you can just reach out to this community and you know say you know what what's good with your health care right. I, I really like it because you you capture these systemic issues that come through little experiences like why the fuck do i have health insurance albeit shitty insurance but i've never met my primary care 
right you know and you you can't call a doctor or i think a, a one that was really interesting for me and i've thought about a lot is there's something there's someone you talk to um who works at a grocery store yeah, I, yeah. I believe and they mentioned that all the thank yous that have increased since the pandemic yep. have been super patronizing yeah. all, all the clapping at 7 p.m and there's this irony of appreciation while basically leaving service workers and other essential workers to die in unsafe conditions. Oh, for sure. Like we haven't, we barely done anything, you know, like we, uh, we got one, you know, one stimulus check. I know they, uh, unemployment insurance was boosted for a while, but by and large, we've just left people to defend for themselves. And, and that's basically what we, we do regularly anyways, you know, it's just the pandemic has, like everything that was bad about America was already bad before the pandemic, but it just like heightened it by 50% or whatever. Like we leave people to to starve and die all the time with their shitty pay. But like the fact that we couldn't even really bring ourselves to, to try to do something about it while 300,000 people are about to be dead from this virus, it's, it's really fucked up. Um, but I do, I really do relish like letting people share their stories and like in a different way like again you know in a in a standard newspaper or whatever you'd have to be like name the person where they're from you know you'd have and and i don't really like to me it doesn't really that sort of shit doesn't really matter like this is a person telling me about their life and a lot of times people are more open when they don't have to like be completely identifiable and, and maybe you know risk losing their job and that sort of thing so you know i'm happy to to have these stories from people who because you know even though we know things are bad and even though things can be bad for you in a specific way like sometimes something about hearing it from somebody else makes you pulls all this connective tissue together you know like i've always i've always had like health insurance that sucks you know like and we get it through we get it through michelle's a teacher and we get it through there but it's like it's like spinning the roulette wheel anytime whether or not i go to get like an x-ray or an mri like oh is this one going to cost two thousand dollars or is it going to cost four hundred dollars you know it's like meanwhile we're spending all this money on it so i don't know i think that like a lot of the stuff that i write about should be obvious to everyone at this point but uh, sometimes it's not and, and sometimes you have to lay it lay it out and, and stack people's stories together for for people to really realize it yeah i feel like you grapple with the capitalist doomed doomsday constants kind of pre-covid and during covid so you, there's like the private healthcare system police violence you cover a lot there's like this base level hell world and now we've been lowered to another level Right. Um, something, you know, as you write, that Dante hadn't accounted for. Right. right. Um, you sort of play on that. Um, a really grim and sarcastic, very dark thing you wrote, but kind of reveals a lot is on the plus side, I guess we finally figured out a way to stop school shootings or pause right. them anyway. So I don't know. I mean, you, you've sort of been talking about it already, but how do you think we should see this pandemic in the grand scheme of justice and equality? as well as like the shady state of our world. I don't know. I don't really, I had a lot of hope over the, you know, the summer with all the marches and, and it was such a weird thing because it was such a terrible, such a terrible issue for everyone to be coming together for, but like, you know, just to see it all happening and to be there, you know, a number of times amongst people like i think one of the only like happy moments i write about in the book is this moment where we're like took a knee in boston with like thousands of people and it you know i felt like a sense of community but it was for of course for a terrible terrible fucking thing you know in the, in the form of unchecked police violence and you know just the other day uh this quote came out from biden about you know we can't run on defund the police that's how they'll hammer us and we you know we gotta wait until after the georgia elections and that's you know that's a sort of a through line that i get into a lot it, it's with democrats it's always about just wait a little bit longer just wait a little bit longer things are going to get better and it never does and, and instantly but like biden's not even president yet and he's already throwing water on on all the the defund shit and you know and they look who we picked for for uh 
his vice president speaking of cops you know mm -hmm. so i don't really have much faith that things are going to get better like maybe if i'm being super optimistic obviously i didn't want donald trump to be president you know he's clearly 10 times worse than joe biden so maybe maybe things will stop getting worse every single day for a little while and, and that at least that that something to be happy about but uh i don't know and now i don't know there's some controversy going on today about trying to force a, a vote for on medicare for all uh or or withholding their support for pelosi in the house and, and already people are talking about why they can't do that you know it's too risky uh so i don't know man things don't look really good but that, which isn't to say like i mentioned i'm thrilled to see trump like it's very funny that he's lost the presidency like 60 times in a row now, you know, like, I don't, I, I do, I can take some pleasure in that, uh, and seeing him, you know, get smacked down by the Supreme Court was, was kind of funny last night. But, you know, uh, it's too bad that we, that we have to be in this position. Well, I guess like in a more optimistic vein, do you want yeah, to tell me? This is real dour, man. I'm such man, a bummer. I'm well, sorry. No, not you. Not you. It's me. It's, <laughs> no, well, it's, it's, the, it's the subject matter of the book. Well, it's like really, I mean, reading it, it's pretty at, at points. It, it's super funny. So that helps. Right. You know? Well, yeah, that was important. That's important to me. And then the last one, because it's obviously like fucked up shit, but they, you know, you got to. I hate, uh, I hate that. I was just about to lapse into that cliche. You got to find the humor, but I don't know. People do say, readers do say that that, that helps them, you know, to get through it. That it's because uh, otherwise, if you just list a series of, of you know, atrocities, that wouldn't be very fun to read. Yeah, and on the other side, you can't live in La La Land right in, during COVID. But it, but in a more optimistic vein, I wanna I want you to tell listeners why you slept with a shovel under your bed. Oh right. Well, that was come. That was one of the more dramatic periods of the summer. I there was, I'd come back from a march in Boston and found it. You know, like I said, we had just we just moved here a couple months at this point, and you know, I heard a neighbor like yelling all this "all lives matter" type of shit and listening to Tucker Carlson real loud, and and I don't know. I was just pretty angry from from being at the march and, and all the you know thinking about all the violence and and so i went over and, and confronted him and it turned into this sort of almost but thankfully not uh violent fist fight and then you know over the course of the next few days some of the other neighbors started to talk about seeing our this guy like with a machete in the yard and like filming our house and you know he continued to like yell from his yard all the time it's comforting. Just like, yeah and it was you know uh, and as i write in the book like i don't i don't want to um fight anybody i'm too old at this point to be getting in fist fights but like i if i had to i would but i don't i certainly don't want to have a guy with a machete running around and you know my wife was obviously scared and and uh he also said he had guns and stuff so we like lived in this really heightened state of tension for for a couple of weeks and then finally or maybe it wasn't that I, I don't know a week 10 days and then finally i was like well i gotta put an end to this, this isn't the way to live so i you know I, I i tried to squash it and it it ended up ended up like you know deflating the tension and you know it, it it was a good lesson in there probably for me about running my mouth off and and things like that but uh it was it was pretty embarrassing to have to i ended up buying the guy like a plant and i was like oh great i like bought my my neighbor it's like sorry i noticed you being racist please accept my this plant as an apology <laughs> yeah i feel like there's like a weird tension there because like fuck that guy but Right, but it's like, I mean, you know, literally there's like 10, 15 yards away, you know, like we live in the suburbs, but it's also like a pretty, our street is pretty dense, densely packed together. So it's like, I, there's no fun in having every second of your day thinking about, I wonder if this this guy's going to come over and chop my head off, you know? 
Yeah, and didn't he didn't he start like bringing you things? Like you really? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, then eventually we like warmed up to each other, and he started bringing us like produce. He worked on a farm, and it was I mean it was actually a nice gesture, but we weren't gonna ever be close friends or something. But it was like I'd certainly rather you know have to like make pleasantries with somebody who I you know, is a Donald Trump fan than, than worry about fighting them every minute, you know? Do you think there's like a lesson in de-escalation there? That's like, not, it's not even like a lesson about, oh, we like Trump supporters and leftists can get together and be friends. Right. No, yeah, so yeah, for sure. Yeah. I certainly, I certainly, I don't know, man. It's one thing to like be out at like a march or protest and yell in the guy's face, like, fuck you or whatever. But I guess it doesn't make that much sense to do it to somebody who lives like right over outside the window. You can look at them all the time, you know? Speaking of escalation, de-escalation, someone called the cops, right? Yeah, that was actually interesting. It was, you know, it was right in the middle of the giant debate about do you call the cops? And and we certainly didn't, but the guy seemed to think that we had. And, uh, and I had to like explain, you know, I was like, no, I don't like the cops. I'm not going to call the cops on you even though you're you know threatening me yeah and you know i don't and i don't i don't i I didn't want to see anything the guy get arrested or anything i just wanted to just wanted to chat and be like all right man let's just fucking cool out and and not come at each other when did it kind of hit you that you know we should not be calling the cops um, the materially safer thing to do is to not call the cops and morally. Um, and, you know, have you ever called the cops? Is this, is this something you think about? Um, have I, I don't know if I've ever called the cops. Um, certainly they have arrived in my life yeah. on a number of occasions. Um, I don't remember. I mean, I've always hated the cops. Like even when I was, you know, wasn't paying as much attention politically for a period of my life. I like always had a visceral hatred of the cops. I've always hated the fucking military. And, but I don't remember when it codified into my mind that certainly like over the past five years or so or writing about, um, oh, right, I did. My, my wife just handed me a note. I did call the cops, and this is a, almost an interesting story. When, like a year or two ago, um, when I was doxxed on this sort of Nazi website where they posted my address and like my family's address, but they had some like wrong information. But I did call. I did call the cops to say, and I, I think I put this in the last book. It was wasn't to like ask them for protection. It was to ask them not to kill me if they if they got a call. You know, like like this was like a list where they oh, were like yeah. sw- swatting journalists and stuff. And there was some some journalist I forget where it was who got swatted right like that week by and her name was on this group uh, on this list as well. So I called and I said, you know just if you get a call about something at my house just please like wait a minute before you come and kill me you know so i don't know if that counts as calling the cops so much as just giving them asking them not to do what they do but i you know over the past however many years of of reporting and, and writing on stories where more often than not when you call the police even if it's like someone with a you know just a mental health situation who's not being particularly threatening to anyone they like the cops they only have one move which is to come out and commit violence you know Mm. and it's just you know it just seems like a real bad idea i mean if there was somebody i would if you know a man broke into my home and was holding us at gunpoint or something i would probably call the police yeah yeah you gotta be you can't be doing it for nothing you know because there's a very real chance that like you were making a phone call that's going to end up with somebody being dead. Yeah. So you, you kind of wandered or just experienced this sort of abolitionist call for, you know, defunding the police, but just, you know, figuring out an alternative mode of safety. 
around you and other people. Um, it seems like it was more of an experience thing rather than this summer, you know, reading an abolitionist uh, writer or something. It, it really no, comes from a... No. Yeah, I mean, and I've read a lot of stuff about that. It's, you know, it's obviously been more at the forefront, but, you know, this since this summer, but, you know, this is, you know, something that, that has been percolating inside mm. for, for a lot of years. I wanted to talk about your writing style, actually. Yeah. Um, you don't use commas, which sounds like it would make your writing very hard to read, but it doesn't. And I'm not sure that would work in everyone else's writing. Like you seem to have a knack for it. And, and uh, I was telling my friend something that popped in my head when I was like, an analogy is like reading your writing without commas is kind of like watching someone play guitar hero on expert. And you're like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> right, one right. should be able to hit those notes, but they do. And the song sounds pretty great. And, well, I'll take, that's a nice compliment. Yeah, I'll take yeah. it. Um, I'd like to read a somewhat lengthy example. Okay. Just for people to get a sense, because have I you think have you works. practiced reading it out loud? Because one it's, time, okay, because it's. I, I found might, myself, even though it makes sense on the page, sometimes it's like hard to read it out loud, you know, because you're. But 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 all right, let's do it. If I get it first try, I'm gonna be super proud of myself. But I'll just record it over because <laughs> okay. yeah, fuck it. So this is this is actually this is the introduction to the section about the man, the the trumpeter, yeah. the maga man. If you take a left out of my new house onto the street that looks like they airdropped a cramped Cape Cod neighborhood into the middle of central Massachusetts, then cross the road where the cars fly by so fast due to a pandemic means traffic accidents can't happen anymore, I guess, and head down toward the old wool mill that looms over the town, no pun intended, and run by the rushing Assabet, which I think means the place where the river turns back in Algonquin where the swarming little black bugs plague me and get stuck in my beard and keep going toward the town center, where the lonely delivery drivers and masks lurk in the quiet doorways of the handful of struggling restaurants still open, the Indian one smells so good from three blocks away, and end up on the bike trail that stretches for about 10 miles through five different old mill towns around here, in which I gather commuters used to bike on to get a, to the train to Boston back when people still commuted You'll come to a house I pass every day on my run with a giant Trump MAGA fuck your feelings flag in that disgusting color blue, it, like if you mix tequila with Gatorade and puked it out, hung for everyone who passes by to see. And every time you encounter it, you'll think anew all over again. Ah, what the fuck? And you will well, feel well, unwelcome in the place you live now, which is the point of any such Trump sign. It's to make certain people feel unwelcome and uneasy. It's like if you stumbled upon the headless corpse of a brigand hung outside the castle walls and you'd think, we gotta get out of here, man. This place seems like bad news. They don't treat people right here. That's all one that's all one sentence, no commas. And it I works. Yeah, it does. But I don't know if it's I mean it's certainly not grammatically sound, like technically speaking, but also like who cares really? And I think like I think people say, like you have, like when you first read it, it's some of this stuff, it's like takes you a minute, like what the hell is going on here? But I don't know. It, it really, it, I feel like it adds something to the experience of it. And, and it's because when I'm thinking these things, that it's just like comes to me in like a, in a, in a, you know, sort of stream of consciousness. And, and I don't know, the idea is to kind of make, elevate your pulse a little bit and, and to kind of maybe flush your cheeks and, and you're reading about this, you know, generally terrible stuff. And, it's not supposed to be like leisurely, you know, and, and it's supposed to just kind of be a visceral experience. And, and, you know, for some people, it really seems to work. Some people probably hate it, but, you know, when I decided to try writing that way, I was like, well, it's better to, to be distinctive and, and maybe fail at it than to just write like normal sentences. Like what's, you know, why would I want to just write, traditional sentences i've done that for 20 years and it didn't really get me anywhere so fuck it let me try this weird shit have you had to practice it like is it a you know no i mean i don't remember if the first couple times i mean someone could probably go back and look i think in the first few issues of hell world i was actually writing kind of normally mm. and then 
I think the first one where I really did it was like the first chapter from the last Hell World book, the one about John McCain's funeral and, and this girl that, you know, whose family we killed in Iraq. And as I was writing that one, it all just sort of like chunked out of my brain all in one piece. And I kind of liked the, the furious rhythm of it. Um, I don't know. It sounds pretentious to talk about your own writing and it's making me like self-conscious, like writing style, you know? Um, but, but it makes the book, it pushes the book forward. I think like it. Right. You know. I, I think so. That's the idea. And, and people who like it, so that's what they seem to say. And I don't know. I, I just wanted, I just, the, the concept at its most basic was to try to accurately translate the way that I feel when I'm reading the news or, or scrolling through Twitter all day and seeing one horror after the next mixed up with like, like, you know, you know, when you're looking in your feed and, and they're like, oh, somebody got murdered, the police killed somebody and we're bombing somewhere. And then someone's telling a dick joke. And then, you know, someone's telling, talking about some stupid argument they had with somebody and then there's someone else getting killed and it's like all of that stuff like uh tumbling around in your brain i feel like our brains have been kind of changed in a way by the, this way of consuming news and information and and so you know at, at, at its most basic the, the no comma stream of consciousness thing is just my way of trying to translate how it, that feels for me every day you know to sort of I don't know if that's how everyone feels, but this is how I feel. And, and if you're going to be reading my thing, you might as well, you know, read, feel how I feel. I wanted to get in before you go, because, you know, this is a holiday in a hell world special. What are your feelings about the holidays? You know, what do they mean to you? And are they going to be different this year for you? Well, yeah, we didn't go to anywhere for Thanksgiving and Michelle made a very nice turkey sorry about the general implications there um but uh and we're not gonna go my mom just called me the other day to say she's not having christmas so that's like a usually a big you know we're, we're pretty traditional massachusetts irish catholics around here when it comes to the holidays so i don't know i don't know if i care i i like i like thanksgiving and christmas like i don't know if i seem like some sort of completely miserable uh grinch or whatever but i like you know i like getting together with the family and having nice food and everything um but i'm not i don't really care that like i didn't really care on thanksgiving like i didn't feel like i was missing anything maybe i'll feel that on christmas i don't know i don't know if i've ever had a christmas where i didn't see my family but I'm also sort of in a fight with my family now about politics. So maybe it's good for us to, uh, to be having a little break this year. I don't know. We're probably going to get a tree tomorrow. Our first tree in our new house. And, uh, I like, a, I like having a Christmas tree. I like the way, I like the way it smells. I like, I don't know, as much as I hate all the bullshit, I, there's still parts of, of the shitty country's culture that, that I will stick to for a little while longer. Yeah. I don't know. Christmas seems, Christmas and the holidays in general, like, feel like it's been such a weird spectacle. And also, like, maybe I don't know if wedge issue is the right way to put it. But, you know, with Trump hosting these holiday parties. And, oh, yeah. Well, you just, can't even say Merry Christmas anymore. They made it illegal. Obama made, made that illegal. Um, no, I, <laughs> I, I, I hate everything about like Christmas has been turned into the stupid culture war shit like anything else. And, you know, every every year there's some some bullshit with Starbucks or whatever, whatever that thing always is writing on the cups. And I do hate the consumerism of, of it. And I don't like mm -hmm. buying shit loads of presents and I don't want, I don't want lots of presents, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's also, and you know, and, and as I mentioned, like I'm a Catholic, I'm definitely haven't been a practicing one for a long time, but all of that shit is still inside of my brain. So I do sort of reflect on that, that stuff a little bit more around the holidays. I don't really want to, like I, every day I'm struggling with the idea of being kept in this house, but I'm also st starting to become accustomed to it after nine months or however long it's been. And so the idea of not having to drive anywhere for Christmas is it's, it's fine by me, you know, we'll get them next year. I think they'll still, if Joe Biden doesn't uh, make Christianity illegal, well, we can catch up where we left off. I feel like the holidays is one of those, this, this time around 
to touch on something you talk about in the book, which is this tension of like really being pissed off at individuals who are doing COVID unsafe things like wearing masks while also having in your mind the kind of more structural blame on our entire system and, and also maybe even specific people, the Trump administration. And there's all these people going home for Christmas. But at the same time, it's like this, you know, people need people. It, it almost feels right. like you got to figure out, people are going to go see their family. You got, we got to figure right. out some form of harm reduction and not just be like demonizing everyone for being COVID unsafe. No, you bring a good point, and uh, I agree. I do place like 90% of the blame on the government for not closing everything down right away and paying everyone to stay home and canceling rent and canceling leases for businesses. And and uh, so just to be clear, this is a, a systemic issue and, and not you know a personal responsibility one. But at the same time, like I've seen lots of people acting real stupid, like, almost instantly who didn't even you know barely even stop doing anything like for more than a few days and so i'd like to save a little bit of my my scorn for those people while acknowledging that it's it's tough to to be isolated and people need to see each other but you know i don't know if people need to be having big gender reveal parties and going to Las Vegas for weekends with the boys and going to pool parties, uh, you know, and all that type of shit. Like for sure. There's, there's some degree of personal uh, scorn that, that those people deserve, not the workers, not the people that have to, that had given no choice to be out working and like that. Oh, that won't be clear. I'm not reserving any judgment for them, but, I don't know, man. People could wait a few months without partying. Yeah. So it's it's been great talking to you. I want to yeah. give you a chance to tell listeners where they can read your work, what's up next for you in 2021 for the sure. best year of all of our lives. <laughs> well, I, yeah, you can, I mean, you can find the newsletter, Welcome to Hell World at, at luke.substack.com. And, uh, I don't know that where you can. What's the what's the book? Uh, oh, you find the book at orbooks.com. We it's actually orbooks. This is yeah. one of the the biggest tensions <laughs> of of uh, of the authors and uh, the publishing house. Uh, no one's ever correct. <laughs> no, I probably said it both ways many times, but no one's ever really told me what it was. So orbooks.com. Yes. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's next. Um, I sort of am sort of like a a one day at a time guy. Uh, I guess I'm going to go think about whether or not I should uh, get drunk soon. And uh, if not, I'm going to go to bed and read some comic books. Wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, uh, we'll put all of the stuff, your Twitter and everything in the description, of course. Yeah, cool. read luke's new book it's super good it's uh, i believe it's gonna start it's gonna start shipping the week of uh december 23rd i believe so oh, yeah great. be on the lookout and order a copy um happy holidays luke uh it's thank been, you it's been and a great time yeah i appreciate your interest and thank you for reading it and uh you know thanks for everyone for listening and i hope you don't die yeah you too all right man peace bye-bye